This is Nicole Alley and Stacy Harbaugh with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, now leading a conservative action group, co-hosting the first 2024 Republican presidential debate, is urging Donald Trump to attend. Walker says that Trump's neglecting a visit to the state is risky, citing Hillary Clinton's loss of Wisconsin in 2016 after bypassing the state. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Walker also commented on a broad range of topics during a recent news luncheon. The former gov also clarified a recent tweet saying that the drinking age ought to be lowered to 18, said the race to beat U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin next year will be tricky, and predictably took aim at the state Supreme Court new liberal majority. As part of an investigation into clergy sexual abuse in the Milwaukee Catholic Archdiocese, Attorney General Josh Call is seeking access to court documents that were sealed when the Archdiocese filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Call filed a motion Wednesday in the U.S. District Court in Milwaukee requesting confidential review of claims by abuse survivors and related documents, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Under terms of the motion, the State Department of Justice would use information obtained to pursue its investigation into the scale of sexual abuse by faith leaders in Wisconsin. All documents would remain confidential. Since its launch in 2021, the investigation has fielded about 250 reports of abuse within several different religious organizations. Charges have resulted against two men, neither of whom had direct connection to the Catholic Church. A former school resource police officer for the Sun Prairie School District has been arrested on an accusation that he sexually assaulted a student, WKOW reports. A Madison Police Department spokesperson says Lamont Crockett is accused of assaulting the Sun Prairie student several years ago in Madison while he was resource officer for the district. He left the job in 2020 and is now with the State Department of Justice working as a Medicaid fraud investigator. A Justice Department official said that Crockett has been placed on paid administrative leave in light of the, quote, serious charges. The Sun Prairie School District sent a letter to families in the district this week, notifying them of the arrest. And now on to today's top stories. Madisonians can still count on the August move-out days to find free stuff. On the 15th and 16th, curbsides will, as usual, be full of items that folks in transition have cast aside. WORT reporters Faye Parks and Abigail Levins spoke with Madison residents, businesses, and city managers about the season known as Hippie Christmas. Right around now, Madison neighborhoods close to the Isthmus are a treasure hunt of couches, electronics, and other miscellaneous items. Just about everything is free for those driving or walking past the full curbsides, which are now makeshift trading posts. For decades, folks have affectionately called this time of year Hippie Christmas. Generally, this is when students' leases expire and they are looking to offload things they no longer need or cannot move themselves. Word of this tradition has spread all over the state. We met a few women who traveled to Madison specifically for move-out week, something they've done for several years now. They admit they're embarrassed about how far they drove for the occasion and did not disclose where they're from or their names. We're here picking up things that the students have thrown out and we take them back and we clean them up and then we use them for a church rummage sale. They say the things they find are often pretty good quality. I think the students need to be, they need to be more aware of what they're throwing away because there's an awful lot of Very good stuff out there that they're just throwing into the dumpsters. Brian Johnson, the city's recycling coordinator and spokesperson, says August move-out and sidewalk clutter is something the streets division plans for every year. It's almost like a snowstorm where we know what's coming, we see the forecast, but we just have to sort of wait and see what actually comes and then counterpunch. Although the piles of stuff are significant, it's still not near as bad as the 1980s rush, according to Johnson. He thinks apartments cause this shift as waste from students living there is more concentrated in private recycling units. Still, Johnson says it is a heavy load for the city each year. This frustrates Johnson because he says people should plan ahead and donate their stuff. 
if you have things that can be donated, there are so many donation opportunities here and places that will come to your house and haul it away for free. Don't just shove it onto the curb and hope that somebody magics it away. We reached out to several donation centers, such as Goodwill, Habitat for Humanities Restore, and St. Vincent de Paul, but none of their representatives were available for comment. However, each of these locations were abuzz with customers. Katie O'Grady is the manager of retail business for all of Agrace's thrift stores in the area. Agrace accepts donations from anyone in the community looking to offload things they no longer need. O'Grady says that they invariably see an increase in donations this time of year, both in-store and through requested pickups by Agrace's truck. She notes that recently, young people have become more responsible about recycling furniture and are more actively involved in Grace's mission. The UW student body has been great for donations and sales, but we've actually seen also an uptick in the amount of volunteering that we see um, from that group. And it's been really great to have their sets of talents uh, around just helping out with store tasks, but also helping us with our social media accounts and keeping a fresh eye on things that happen in the store. While small retail businesses like Atomic Antiques on Verona Road do not take donations, they also see an increase in customers looking to furnish their new homes in the weeks before school resumes. Jennifer Richardson is the co-owner of Atomic Antiques, which she opened with her husband last year, with a focus on furniture from the 1950s and 1960s. Richardson and her husband have long participated in Hippie Christmas, finding unique pieces that others have cast aside. None of us are too proud to go around sometimes, and if you find something that is available on the curb, it's nice to keep it out of a landfill. That's actually one of the things that we like best about our shop and our business is that we keep a lot of cool things looking good. We sometimes repair them, fix them up, and then we give them a new home instead of just letting them go to waste and get thrown away. In recent years, Richardson notes that there's been an uptick in interest surrounding used items. She says the younger generation is particularly interested in the atomic design era. A lot of the generation that is buying furniture these days, they, they do like the look. They can go to Ikea and they know they can buy very similar items, but they come here and it's, it's often a little bit more well-built furniture. It lasts a little bit longer. They sort of remember maybe their grandparents having it in their houses, and it just brings back a little nostalgia. And then it's a really fun decorating style because there's vibrant colors and there's so many cool lines and shapes and just the, the furniture just gives you a kind of a, like a really neat vibe. Ivan J. Wattenpool of BHA Resale Store on East Washington has also noticed an increase in interest. BHA Resale is largely in the business of estate sales. They buy up and sell entire households worth of products from eras past. Wattenpool says that utility items are especially popular for young people these days. They can fill up their kitchen shelves at reasonable prices. Johnson, the city's recycling coordinator, says that incorrect recycling practices are always the city's biggest issue. People often leave their TVs and other electronics outside, a dangerous practice with a simple fix. He says that the city runs recycling drop-off sites specifically for these items, a service that is free to all Madison residents. The Madison City website gives several guidelines on how to properly set out items for collection. Reporting for WORT News and with contributions from Fay Parks, I'm Abigail Levins. Plastic, it turns out, is everywhere. It's in the clothes we wear. It's in our furniture. It's the cause. It's the casing in our electronics. It's in our tools and kitchenware. It's in our walls and pipes. And, of course, it's in our packaging. According to the EPA, almost 36 million tons of plastic were manufactured in the United States in 2018, coming out to a little more than 200 pounds per person. The pure prevalence of plastic prompted WORT producer Nate Carlin to embark on a plastic diary of sorts. Here's what he found. I began my quest to understand plastics with a simple question. What do those little numbers surrounded by the arrows mean? Answering that question led me down a series of rabbit holes as I became increasingly aware of how much plastic was in my life. For about one month in April of 2022, I collected all the plastic waste my partner and I generated, much to her chagrin, and then I poured it all out in our living room. It made quite the pile. Let's sift through this pile together. Let me share with you some of the things I discovered. Plastic number one is polyethylene terephthalate, often abbreviated PET or PETE. You might know PET by its more common name when it's a fabric, polyester. But even that is a bit of a misnomer. Polyester is actually a family of plastics, of which PET is just the most common. But when PET is hard, it's labeled with the number one. 
the first of the resin identification codes used to identify hard plastics. They are the little numbers in the recycling symbol on all your plastic stuff. If you went digging through your recycling right now, I'm pretty sure most of your plastic waste would be number one, because that is certainly how it was for me. When you think of plastic, PET is what you think of. It's often clear and hard, and it's used in lots of food packaging, like water bottles. And PET is a great example of why plastic is so widespread. It's impermeable to water and very lightweight, making it ideal for food packaging and shipping, especially over long distances. It can be clear so that consumers can see what they're buying, or it can be dyed for marketing purposes and shelf appeal. And it's very cheap to produce, but more on that in a second. Let's move on to plastic number two, high-density polyethylene, often abbreviated HDPE. You might think, after all that talk of PET, that it's the most commonly produced plastic resin, but actually it's not even in the top three. The number one most produced plastic is polyethylene, making up about a third of all plastics produced. Polyethylene has a few different ways it can be turned into a hard resin, but the most common is high-density polyethylene, and you can usually find it in shampoo bottles, cleaning supplies, or milk jugs. High-density polyethylene comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, from my tiny little travel shampoo bottle to the stout gallon jugs of my laundry detergent. This gets at one of the key strengths of plastic, which is in fact where it gets its name from, the ease at which plastic is shaped. Most consumer plastic is shaped using an injector mold. Plastic is sold to manufacturers in pellets that get melted down and molded. The special thing about polyethylene and other consumer plastics is that they can be melted at very low temperatures relative to other materials like glass and aluminum. This makes shaping plastic cheaper and less energy intensive than other materials. It's also what makes polyethylene and most other consumer plastics unsafe to microwave. Like other plastics, polyethylene is a polymer, a long chain of repeated molecules. Polymers and plastics do not need to be made from fossil fuels, but the vast majority are, including polyethylene. When fossil fuels are mined, there are a whole mix of organic chemicals. To use those chemicals as fuels, they need to be refined. Natural gas is a whole host of chemicals when it is drilled, but the pure stuff, methane, is what comes out of your stovetop. One of the more common chemicals that is refined out of natural gas is ethylene, which is the building block for polyethylene. This is part of what makes plastic so cheap. Many of its constituent parts are byproducts of refining natural gas and oil for fuel. On to plastic number three. Hmm, I don't seem to have any plastic number three in my pile of plastic waste. Don't worry, I won't have to go far to find some. Plastic number three is polyvinyl chloride, otherwise known as PVC, or vinyl. It's often turned into a fabric, but it's also widespread as a resin, usually used in construction or piping, like in the PVC pipes under my sink. PVC is especially durable, which is why it's used in construction. But PVC has several shortcomings. Like other plastics, it can soften under heat. It can be quite brittle, which can make it difficult to work with. To solve the problem of brittleness, manufacturers began to put in additives when manufacturing PVC. You see, when I say something like plastic number three is PVC, that is a bit misleading. When something is labeled with a plastic resin identification code, it only needs to be mostly made of that plastic. When a plastic bottle is labeled as number one, it's actually only mostly PET, with a whole host of additives added. PVC tends to have a whole slew of additives added into it, since its uses are so varied and demanding. Construction PVC has to be resistant to a large range of temperatures, has to be fire resistant, and has to be easy to work with and shape. For years, a common additive to PVC was a group of chemicals called phthalates, which made the PVC easier to shape. Additives are usually present in trace amounts too small to cause much harm. But for years, phthalates and PVC pipes leached into the water supply. In large quantities, phthalates are linked to negative health outcomes, including infertility and metabolic problems. Recently, PVC manufacturers have pivoted away from including phthalates as an additive. Still, a lot of PVC in use was installed before the changes were made, so phthalate exposure is an ongoing area of concern for public health. Let's move on to plastic number four, of which I only generated a single food carton. That's all right, I have a whole pile of plastic number four under my sink. Plastic number four is low-density polyethylene, or LDPE, the counterpart to plastic number two. It can be used to make resins, but its most common usage is as a plastic film, like in grocery bags. The same type of plastic, it turns out, can be shaped in a number of ways. In thin enough sheets, polyethylene becomes pliable, almost paper-like, but much harder to rip and still impermeable to water. But often the strengths of plastic are also its weaknesses. 
LDPE is light and strong, but that means it can get into machinery and gum up the works, making it a difficult plastic for recycling plants to handle. Most LDPE recycling makes you pack grocery bags into another grocery bag to make a big old LDPE basketball. PET, aka number one, and HDPE, aka number two, are the most commonly recycled consumer plastics. It's a struggle to profitably recycle every other type of plastic. One of plastic's great strengths is that it's quite cheap, cheaper than aluminum by ton, and requires less weight for similar uses, like in soda bottles. But cheap is not good for recycling. The cheaper a good is to produce, the harder it is to recycle. After all, recycled plastic needs to be sold back to manufacturers. And if it is cheaper to buy newly made plastic, most manufacturers will just do that. And recycling plastic has its own costs, which are very different than its manufacturer. There's the cost to sort the plastic, the cost to melt it down and get rid of any impurities, and the cost to reform it into a usable product. All that together means that plastic recycling is an economy of scale. You need large amounts of relatively pure plastic of a single type to make it profitable. So far, that is mostly HDPE and PET, which are produced in large enough quantities and maintain their purity through most of their usage life. LDPE, good old number four, is too often contaminated and used in too low of quantities by weight to be consistently recycled. And that is true for almost all other plastics besides number one and number two. Polyethylene recycling has an additional problem. Remember when I said that plastic recycling needed to be melted down and have its impurities removed? Well, that is usually not possible with polyethylene. Polyethylene recycling doesn't produce nearly as pure a product as polyethylene manufacture. Even on products that use recycled polyethylene, they usually only use about 15% recycled material, with the rest being new polyethylene. And those products are rarely consumer-facing. Recycled polyethylene is often used in plastic lumber or in plastic crates, material meant to be out of sight and eventually discarded. Products made from recycled polyethylene often can't be recycled themselves. The one consumer product that is made from recycled polyethylene is often trash bags, which are bound themselves for the landfill. But now, it's time to introduce you to my favorite type of plastic. Plastic number five is polypropylene, the second most widely produced plastic resin. And once you start looking for polypropylene, you'll see it everywhere. Polypropylene is the mover and shaker of the plastic world. Not as brittle as other plastics, it stands up well to repeated movement. Polypropylene is used in a whole host of ways, from squeeze tubes to food storage containers to the clasps on my backpack. Chances are, if you see a piece of hard plastic that's meant to move, it's polypropylene, the little plastic that could. But despite being widespread, only 1% of polypropylene is recycled, and most of that is from industrial recycling, not consumer recycling. The problem lies in its size. Most polypropylene products are small and mixed in with other products. They're often the lids, the hinges, the dispensers, the clasps. Small, useful pieces of plastic that don't stand alone. Other materials are often glued to polypropylene. For instance, the rubber ring around the head to a soap dispenser. And polypropylene has another problem. But to understand that, we need to do a little plastic history. Plastic is a relative newcomer to the world of widespread manufactured materials. Most plastics weren't invented until well into the 20th century and weren't used in consumer products until the 50s and 60s. Polypropylene, for instance, began commercial production in 1957. Since then, the manufacture of plastic has increased steadily and significantly. In 2022, the U.S. produced nearly one gallon of polypropylene for every person in the country. But all that volume of plastic does not immediately make its way to the landfill. Plastic product lifespan varies wildly by usage. A lot of plastic recycling is focused on packaging because that has the shortest timeline from manufacture to landfill. Other types of plastic uses have much longer lifespans. Plastic and clothes, like polyester, are used for longer, and plastic used in construction or for industrial uses can last for 20 or 30 years before they head to the landfill. That means some types of manufactured plastics are only just beginning to hit landfills recently. Polypropylene is one of those types of plastics. It's tough and durable, but that means it's in products that are used longer and go to the landfill more intermittently. It's not necessarily a problem if plastic usage has been consistent for a long time. Unfortunately, plastic usage is just the opposite. Plastic is such a versatile material. It's cheap, easily shaped, and can be mixed with additives for all sorts of uses. And new uses are being found all the time. Polypropylene is now used in advanced medical devices since it's impermeable and doesn't pose a health risk. It's also widely used in car manufacture since it's tough and durable. Recycling efforts have focused on the low-hanging fruits of high-density polyethylene and polyethylene terephthalate, the packaging plastics. 
But waiting in the wings are plastics like polypropylene that have complicated and varied uses and that are mixed in with other products. We've been at this a while. Let's take a little coffee break. Meet plastic number six, styrene. If you're anything like me, you find styrene in one product and one product only, the lids on to-go coffee cups. Styrene is the most temperature resistant of the common plastic resins, so it's often in the lids on hot beverages or in microwave safe packaging. Lids are actually one of the most varied pieces of plastic in my trash. The same nondescript black coffee lid could be styrene, polypropylene, or high-density polyethylene, depending on where I got my coffee that day. Styrene can also be mixed with air and turned into a foam. Styrofoam, to be exact. Styrofoam has widespread usage as a shipping material, since it's light and insulates well against cold and heat. Styrene is one of the few widely manufactured plastic resins that has known health hazards in and of itself, not just through additives like with PVC. Hazardous plastics usually fall into one of two categories. They either imitate hormones that occur in the body, causing imbalances, or they cause cancer. Styrene falls in the second camp. The Department of Health and Human Services categorized styrene as reasonably anticipated to be a human carcinogen in 2011. Plastic number seven is the catch-all for all other plastic resin. When I began this journey, I didn't think I would find any plastic number seven in my trash. The plastics that fall in this category are often used in specialized goods, like acrylics and lenses or laboratory equipment. I was surprised to be wrong. Plastics that don't fall into any other category are a part of my life, and they probably are for you too. Some beverage containers are labeled number seven, and this can be for a variety of reasons. Maybe they are a mix of plastics. One common practice in food packaging is to line one material with a thin layer of another material. For instance, milk cartons are lined with a thin layer of polyethylene so the cardboard doesn't soak through. When a plastic is lined with another plastic, the resulting resin can be labeled as number seven. I also came across a number of bioplastics in my trash, more than I was expecting. Bioplastics are plastics that are not derived from fossil fuels and usually come from plant materials. One of the most common bioplastics is polylactic acid, abbreviated PLA, and I found a number of PLA number seven food containers in my trash. PLA is technically biodegradable and is often marketed as a more sustainable material than other plastics. But PLA doesn't break down until it reaches higher temperatures, around 136 degrees Fahrenheit. That means it can be composted in an industrial composter, which regularly reaches those temperatures, but won't usually break down in natural environments like, say, the ocean. Once I began my quest to look for plastics, I realized that they were everywhere, and not just in my trash. Plastic is widely used in construction, it's in our kitchenware and clothes, it's the keyboard I'm writing this on, it's almost certainly in the radio you're listening to, in the car you're driving, and the couch you're sitting on. It's in the walls, it's in the water, it's probably behind you right now. The numbers are a useful little guide, but plastic is so much more. I was surprised how, again and again, plastic contained depths and nuances, light and cheap, but with nasty environmental and health effects. And still, every month, I send a little more to the recycling center into the landfill. For WORT News, I'm Nate Carlin. Every other week, we bring you an excerpt from the Oddity Box podcast. This week, host D. Starr speaks with Christina Williams, executive director of the Sun Prairie Chamber of Commerce, about the rich history and bright future of Cornfest, the beacon of unity and celebration. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D. Starr, here with Christina Williams. Christina Williams, how are you today? I'm doing great. So you got to meet my lovely wife. I did. Rocio. Mm, yes. She told you about her many, many, many plants. Yes. Fantastic. It's a little jungle up there. It is a jungle in here. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am the executive director at the Sun Prairie Chamber of Commerce. I came to the chamber as a former business owner. So I had a great deal of respect for the members that are at a chamber. I had been a member of a chamber myself. <laughs> it gave me a really great perspective coming into the chamber and understanding what I was looking for when I was coming into a chamber. It was a great fit for me. I've lived in Sun Prairie for over 30 years, raised my family there. I have four children that have gone through the school district there. My husband and I have lived in the same house in Sun Prairie area for 30 years. Wow. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. So it's safe to say that you are invested. Absolutely. Yeah. This is my home and I've lived there longer than I've lived anywhere else. 
What role does the chamber play in the community? We view ourselves as a connector. We are responsible for connecting our member businesses with the community, their customers, businesses that maybe they need or businesses that need them, as well as the resources that they may need to be successful in their business. Yeah. And I can vouch for that because I'm a chamber member. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know how long I've been a chamber member. I think I've been a chamber member for about Ooh, three months? Maybe longer. It was in the spring. It was in the spring Mm -hmm. because I remember still having to wear a coat. Yeah. And now it's record-breaking heat. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Yes. It's been a summer. Yeah, it's been about, you know, about as long as the summer, Mm -hmm. uh, right before the summer. And the connections that I've made and the people that I've met have really been lucrative not only for my business, but personally, I feel a really great connection with you. We talk, I, I tell people, I say, <laughs> Christina, I'm like, you know, I talk to Christina like once a week, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. Uh, working on this Corn Fest thing, I really enjoy our conversations. Yeah, Speaking of Corn Fest, how did Corn Fest start and what's its main goal? All of the dollars that are raised at Corn Fest are turned back into our community to help with scholarships and health initiatives and bettering. For starters, Corn Fest is actually celebrating 70 years. And it was started in the 50s when Uh, Actually, it would be 1953, (laughs) 70 years ago. Really, it was the community members looking for a reason to come together. So it was these business members that came together and said, you know, we'd like to have some kind of a community gathering. So where the Bank of Sun Prairie is wasn't there. And it was a park at the time. They hosted a corn boil and invited the community. It was a great way, like I said, for the community to come together. And over the course of a couple years, it grew a little bit more. They decided that it needed to stay around. So they looked at businesses in the community and tried to decide who could take over the planning of this because these business owners were trying to build their own businesses. So to take time off to do this every single year was difficult. They looked around and they're like, oh, well, you know, the chamber, chamber has staff. We'll give it to the chamber. And since you've been at the helm, Mm -hmm. you understand why they did that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I really do. So it was born. The chamber owned Corn Fest and put on this festival. The Stokely Canning Company, they decided to donate the corn and they would boil the corn and they would deliver it, moved it down to Angel Park. I can't remember the year exactly, but and so they would just deliver it. Well, the, the canning company was where the nitty gritty is right now. And so it was really a really easy transition to take it over to Angel Park to cross the railroad track. And when the canning company closed, they gave the canning equipment just enough to do for Corn Fest to the chamber. And so we own a huge industrial boiler and um, these steaming vessels where the corn gets steamed for for the festival. Corn Fest has done a lot for the community. As the community grows, we're trying to be more inclusive to everyone yes. in the community. Can you tell us about the culture celebration and why it was created? So we've done a lot with Corn Fest to try and engage the diversity of our community. Two years ago, we had La Movida start coming in on Sunday because the Latino community. Shout out to La Movida. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Right. The Latino community, the maze is such an important part of their culture. And so it was a natural fit to have them come in. And it's really become a really big Sunday event for so many Latino families to come out to Corn Fest and celebrate with live music and contests, etc. So on. It's become a family event for so many. They'll come out and they'll just hang out all day. So it's really been fun. But we thought, well, what can we do to further this? So this, with the help of some business owners in our community, you and certainly are one, um, we listened and we said, okay, what can we do? Thought so we really want to embrace our Black community and give them a platform, right, for sharing with the world 
their culture and to celebrate the fact that we have such a great community. And we just really want the Black community members to feel welcome. And we want them to have a space where they can go, oh, look, they're playing music that I know and I love. And they're, you know, I'm, I'm seeing more of people that I know and I'm comfortable with and trying to merge those two things so that we can bridge a gap that exists. You know, we just want everybody to feel welcome and loved and valued at the festival. And this really gives us a great platform for that. We really want to start the dialogue, continue the dialogue and have it be a two-sided conversation. So, you know, shout out to you for really seeing that and bringing it to me, right? And saying, hey, I have this vision and really challenging me to think outside the box. Absolutely. Um, just doing my civic duty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For my community. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great community. It is. That's it. That's all. It is. Yeah. So what is the main message that the chamber and the city would like the black community to know? I can't speak specifically for the city. And not to cut you off. Yeah. That is a great point. One of the common misconceptions is that the chamber and the city are one and the same mm -hmm. when in fact they are two separate entities. Yes. The chamber is its own entity and the city is its own entity. They might have some of the same interests, mm -hmm. of course, yeah. but they're not necessarily intertwined to the fact where if the chamber goes left, the city's going to go left. Yeah. There's, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of projects that you wanted to do uh, or things that you wanted to get done that the city, you know, wasn't a hundred percent on board with as quick as you wanted them to be, or they've just flat out said no. <laughs> sure. <laughs> We've really worked hard to build a relationship with the city. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry instructors and overall efficiency experts, John and Allie, help us understand how to get a picture of your home's energy use, comfort, and safety. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you gonna do? I'ma throw sheets, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello everyone, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Cool stuff, we love cool stuff. Hey Allie, uh, a lot of people want their homes to be more energy efficient for the benefit of the planet and, frankly, their wallets. But they really aren't sure what that might look like. Yeah, there's a lot of confusing information out there about replacing your windows, adding insulation in your attic, replacing your furnace, all in the name of improved energy efficiency. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's hard to know where to begin and what improvement gives you the best bang for your buck. And this, quite frankly, is where a home energy audit can give a homeowner a set of recommendations to improve the house's efficiency and comfort. Yeah, so you may be asking yourself, what exactly is a home energy audit? And what is the auditor going to do to my house? Well, first off, this is a good audit, just to be clear, because, you know, the term audit can be fraud, right? It's going to inform you of the many ways you can improve your house's energy efficiency and save some money. So these types of audits are sometimes offered by your power company, and they may cost little to no money to have done. But a true home energy audit looks at the whole house. Mm -hmm. The auditor should be somebody who is certified as a building analyst by a, an organization called the Building Performance Institute, BPI, and which tells you that they have been trained to perform a comprehensive energy audit, one that will look at how tight your home is and identify areas for improvement. Right. And this auditor will show up with some pretty impressive looking equipment to run what's called a blower door test. The blower door test consists of a large, powerful fan that, and that fan with its frame will be temporarily fitted into one of your home's exterior doors. So instead of a wide open entry door, you'll have this door with the fan in it. Yeah, and by this time, the auditor will already have closed and locked all of your windows and other exterior doors. They've sealed up the house like you would do typically in the winter. Mm -hmm. They will also turn off any combustion appliances, such as a gas-burning furnace or water heater. Um, and this is a safety measure because they're about to pull the house's air out through that fan, and you wouldn't want them pulling combustion gases, which include, for example, carbon monoxide, out of the chimney and into the house. Oh, yeah, that, that wouldn't end well, for sure. So once they got the house all ready to go then... They'll turn on that powerful fan 
and the home's air will be sucked out through the fan, creating negative air pressure. So during the test, the air pressure inside your house will be significantly lower than the air pressure outside. Yeah, and this makes nature very uncomfortable. It's true. Nature seeks equilibrium, and in this case, equilibrium between the air pressure outside and the air pressure inside. So what's going to happen is air will try to rush into your house through any other holes that it can find. So let's be clear that those holes, most of which you can't see, have existed before the auditor turns on the blower door. But what the fan does is it acts as an amplifier for those air leaks. It makes it easier for air to find those holes and come rushing into the house. So, John, how does the auditor then find those air leaks? Oh, for sure. And and I've had this done to my house. It was kind of fun. Um, The high-tech way uh, to find these holes is with an infrared camera. Very expensive and cool camera that sees the temperature differences of whatever is in the picture. Not a very good camera for taking selfies, though. i got to say that because that would be weird. Um, But anyway, uh, let's say the day you're having the audit done, your home is heated to a toasty 70 degrees and the outside temperature is, say, 20 degrees. With the blower door sucking all the 70 degree air out of the house, the 20 degree air is rushing in through all those holes trying to replace it. So by scanning the home with the infrared camera, the auditor will see all the holes as very blue, cold areas that indicates low temperature. The auditor will then be able to show you those air leaks and where they are and give you recommendations on how to seal them up. Yeah, those IR photos are super informative, but there's one limitation to keep in mind and to plan around. Mm -hmm. So IR photography, as you've said, it sees temperature differences and displays those differences as different colors. So on days when the outside temperature and the inside temperature are nearly the same, say a nice spring day or a fall day, you, you don't see anything on the IR camera. Mm. Um, in that case, you can use a lower tech tool like a smoke pencil or I've used incense right. to locate air leaks. Um, wherever there's a hole, something lightweight like smoke will be pulled into the house. And it's pretty visually obvious. In fact, you may even just be able to feel areas with your hand where air is is leaking into the house. Right. And it sounds like it might even smell a lot nicer too by the time you're done. Yes. You have to choose choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, on choose that. wisely on that one. Without the air camera, you can find the general area of a hole. And for some air leaks, that will be enough information to seal them up with maybe some caulk or some spray foam. But the low-tech methods don't give you a view into the wall the way an IR camera does. And with an IR camera, you might discover that a wall that you thought was well insulated is Missing a piece of insulation. Yeah, so for this reason, you only want to have the blower door test done on a day where there's a significant temperature difference between the indoors and outdoors. So preferably heating season, but you can also do it during cooling season. Right. And with the holes in your home's exterior envelope located, the auditor can then give you a set of recommendations on which holes might be the easiest to handle, least expensive things to address, or which ones will give the most bang for the buck. For example, some weather stripping around a door might be a simple, inexpensive repair that a modestly handy homeowner can do, whereas addressing that missing piece of insulation in a wall that's all sealed up might be a great idea, but very difficult to do. Yeah. And the auditor will also determine what's the overall leakiness of your home, which is measured as a number of air changes per hour of your home's volume of air when the blower door creates negative 50 pascals of air pressure. Like, that was a word salad, was it not? Oh, my God. Um, it's not terribly important that you understand how that number is calculated. Rather, it's useful to understand how leaky your home is before and after you seal up those holes that the auditor found. You want to see improvement, which in this case means that that number goes down after the air sealing work is done. The auditor will also take a look at your appliances and let you know if there's something you should replace. They'll also test your exhaust fans to see if there are any problems there. When it's done, you have a, you'll have a pretty comprehensive uh, set of results, and the auditor will consult with you on which issues are most important and what should be done first. Right. I had one done on my previous house, and we found things that I hadn't even been aware of, having lived there for years. We crawled all around the house, basement, attic, and we found tons of leaks. Um, I fixed as many as I could, and then the consultant came back and retested, and the change really was quite dramatic. Uh, it dropped my heating bill from $230 a month to $160 a month. Wow. I'm not making it up. That It was quite dramatic. It literally paid for itself within a couple of years. That said, 
It does beg a question. What if you make a home too tight and it can't breathe? John, that is a great question and one that we will address and debunk next time on The House Always Wins. Wow, a cliffhanger. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you want to hear this or any other episode of The House Always Wins, go on over to WORTFM's website and type in The House Always Wins in the search bar and you'll find us. And if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry you'd like us to answer, drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Until next time, don't stand on top of a stepladder. It specifically tells you not to do that. Right? And don't start any project with, how hard could this be? But I'm going to throw if I don't get paid for this housework. I call it housework. It's 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In the following segment, you might begin to understand what it's like to take a day trip with an art historian who focuses on material culture. Jennifer Hawkins wanted to have a photo taken at the Wisconsin State Historical Site at the H.H. Bennett Photography Studio and Museum. And Dave Rambo is the director of the museum and the photographer. So in this episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields asks a million questions rather than drinking her water and minding her business. If you wanted a picture done, there was no such thing as uh, personal cameras unless you knew a photographer. So uh, you had to make an appointment and come in and it was very solemn and very proper. So for that reason, people weren't just casual and funny and happy. It was very solemn and very serious. You rarely see anybody smile unless they don't know any better, like a kid or, you know, something like that. So, so Jen, you're a modern woman. You've taken <laughs> selfies. Why is it important for you to have this photograph using this antiquated way of capturing your lovely image. I think um, when I found out that this museum also was an operating studio doing tintype uh, portraits, I was so excited because it's, I don't know, it's history, right? But also just um, when I walked in and saw all the natural light that illuminated the studio, of course it was natural light, right? They didn't have electric lights. And the, um, the actual cameras that they use, the um, everything, it was just, it's more than just having a photo snapped. It's like a whole experience and you get to also take a part of history home with you. That's very cool. I was gonna say, you could pick up a rock and do the same thing, but I won't be facetious. <laughs> okay, so now walk me through the process. Jen, you can tell me to stop if you want me to stop if it's distracting you. So now, Princess, are you queen or Princess Jennifer? Uh, I realized when I was putting this together in in front of the mirror that it's kind of a combination of like Greek goddess and princess. And then I have my big, bold glasses frames, which I'm going to keep on because they're part of who I am. And I was like, I kind of, I'm kind of digging that like Greek goddess slash princess. Serene Highness. Yeah. Serene, Serene Highness yeah. career woman. That's right. Who yeah. needs to see because she's ruling stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Can't walk around all the side and everything's fuzzy. I got I got I got people to boss around. <laughs> so now, do you get to pick your backdrop? Yes, and so there are uh, oh, four, six, six of them. Yes, and I got to look at all of them. There's a book they have at the desk, and you can see them all. The one that's up right now is kind of a, a pinky blue landscape with a, a blue sky behind it, but it will all be, of course, in black and white. The black and white ones, we did the best we can using some of his original pictures that were done here to replicate the feeling of those. And um, we had a, a painter actually hand paint those. Okay, so Princess, so now what do we do? So now I'm not here, so just walk her through the normal thing. All right. I do like this, this uh, chair, it has a throne vibe. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, the arms you can, have you, you know one hand up? Mm -hmm. I, you don't have a wand, but no, I don't. I like wand. I like the idea of your hand mm -hmm. next to you, if if that works. Unfortunately, I have a cut on this hand, oh. and then I have a tattoo on this hand that I don't really want in the picture. 
Not that I don't want to. The good news is those tattoos are blue. Oh. So they'll be the film light. that we make. It loves those lower bands of of uh, spectrum of light. So blue will be white or clear. As far as you know. All right. Magic. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll yeah. just in red, orange, yellow. Those will look black or dark. So a lot of these images of these people that you look at from history, they're always wearing dreary colors, gray and black. And no, that's probably rust color and red. Mm -hmm. You know, very bright, very vibrant. Now what I will be using today, it will start with this anyway, is a heavy camera. But this is a, a light use studio camera. Um, it's a box with a lens on one end to take the image. There's no button to push. You take the lens cap off and count the number of seconds that kind of you've guessed how long it takes. Put that back on and then the film in the back will register and you'll develop it in this dark kind of closet. If you want to take a look in here through this, look at this screen like you're looking at a monitor. Um, I'm going to, I'll start, I'll get this kind of in focus a little bit and then we'll go from there. Oh, there she is. <gasps> so she's standing on her head. Yeah. Isn't that something? So I'm going to zoom in a little more and I probably will lower this. See, that's my zoom lens. You have to move the whole camera forward and backwards. That's close as you can get. Now, when I show this to kids, they're very disappointed because the front is the lens, the back is a viewing screen, indoors, there's a lot of nothing. It's just a black box. So the camera really doesn't do anything except focus the light to the, where the film is. That's all it does. Sometimes that angers me when people see that, what you've done and they say, your camera does really good work. Camera didn't do a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to zoom a little. All right. I'm going to go back into this dark room. It's, it's really just a closet. I call it a dark room. It's Dave, it's, it's a dark room. Okay. It's a dark room. <laughs> and um, I'm going to puddle around, pour some chemicals on a plate. Then it has to sit in a bath of silver nitrate and water for three minutes to coat and become what we call an emulsion on the front of that piece of metal. We can also do it on glass, but today tintype is metal. And um, after three minutes, it can go into a special holder that's light tight, and then that can safely be brought through this lighted area and put in the back of the camera. Um, if we just opened, brought the plate in, it would turn black, just and be wrecked. Um, one shot will take about 20 to 30 minutes to do. So that's why it's, everything has to be so precise and slow so you get a good image on this one time. If you don't, either because she moves or I do something wrong with the chemicals, you got to start over. So then, she, but you won't know the results until right. when? After... We do this 10 second exposure. I'll come back in here and I'll pour some of that vinegar smelling developer across this plate. It looks kind of bluish, cloudy blue. And that will pour over there and I'll be able to see this image kind of rise up and it'll look like a negative. Ah, okay. And um, then I will put this in a pan and bring it out to you and pour this fixer on it. And it will turn from that negative bluish thing into black and white as we saw her except everything's backwards perfect so, so it's one o'clock right now so we're, we're starting and um, the sitter has to be still today about 10 seconds maybe a little longer but we'll say 10 but they are allowed to blink as normal and of course don't stop breathing you know keep breathing as normal um, other than that any movement will be a blur. So we'll remove the screen. In its place, we'll put this box with the negative in it. And this 
And the negative is the same distance from this lens as the screen. So in theory, if that was in focus, this will be as well. So it's pretty easy. I'll remove this, which will expose that negative to the front. And then when I take the lens cap off, the light will stream in a straight line in and hit that light sensitive area. Since it's in focus, the light will make a pattern from where she, her face into that. I know, it's just a simple light, but it, it's almost like magic if you'd never seen this especially. Okay, you ready? Right. Chin up, good. Okay, hold that. Here we go. I'll count backwards from 10. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and clear. Yeah, there's so a little shading, but I... I'm going to go in there and I'll bring, after I pour developer, I'll bring everything right back here to this stool and then we'll be able to see what the final product will be. Here we are. <gasps> Is that about what you expected? Tell me when you're ready, and I'll pour the juice. Ready. Okay. This fixer's a little older, so it might take a little longer, but that blue's gonna go away, and we'll start seeing <gasps> the real person behind the blue. I've done this thousands of times, and it's just a chemical reaction, but every time you do it, it, it seems like a little magic going on, you know? That was Radio Chipstone contributor Jennifer Fields with Dave Rambo, director of the H.H. Bennett Studio and Museum in the Wisconsin Dells, and Jennifer Hawkins, a sublime ruler worthy of being memorialized by Tintype. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters were Sarah Gabler, Faye Parks, and for the last time, Abigail Evans. Special thanks to our feature contributors, D-Star, Ali Brenny, and John Stefani, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Carlin produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nicole Alley. And I'm your host, Stacy Harbaugh. Stay up to date with the WORT local news by subscribing to it as a podcast. Stay tuned for the Perpetual Notion Machine up next, featuring UW-Madison mushroom researcher Annie Pringle. Good night. W-O-R-T, Madison.